be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Mysterious Affair at Styles, Part 8. In the last chapter, Poirot had revealed that Mr. Inglethorpe did in fact have an alibi for the night of his wife's murder, alluding to his having an affair with Mrs. Rakes. In this chapter, Mr. Inglethorpe bites back at these allegations. This story contains themes that some listeners may find unsettling. However, slight edits have been made to make it more suitable for sleep. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now, all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 8 Fresh Suspicions There was a moment's stupefied silence. Jap, who was the least surprised of any of us, was the first to speak. My word, he cried. You're the goods, and no mistake, Mr. Poirot. These witnesses of yours are all right, I suppose. Voila, I have prepared a list of them. Names and addresses. You must see them, of course, but you will find it all right. I'm sure of that, Jap lowered his voice. I'm much obliged to you. A pretty mare's nest arresting him would have been. He turned to Inglethorpe. But, if you'll excuse me, sir, why couldn't you say all this at the inquest? I will tell you why, interrupted Poirot. There was a certain rumour. A most malicious and utterly untrue one, interrupted Alfred Inglethorpe in an agitated voice. And Mr. Inglethorpe was anxious to have no scandal revived just at present. Am I right? 
quite right, Inglethorpe nodded. With my poor Emily not yet buried, can you wonder I was anxious that no more lying rumours should be started? Between you and me, sir, remarked Jap, I'd sooner have any amount of rumours than be arrested for murder, and I venture to think your poor lady would have felt the same. And if it hadn't been for Mr. Poirot here, arrested you would have been, as sure as eggs is eggs. I was foolish, no doubt, murmured Inglethorpe. But you do not know, Inspector, how I've been persecuted and maligned. And he shot a baitful glance at Evelyn Howard. No, sir, said Jap, turning briskly to John. I should like to see the lady's bedroom, please. And after that, I'll have a little chat with the servants. Don't you bother about anything. Mr. Poirot here will show me the way. As they all went out of the room, Poirot turned and made a sign to follow him upstairs. There he caught me by the arm and drew me aside. Quick, go to the other wing. Stand there, just this side of the blaze door. Do not move till I come. Then, turning rapidly, he rejoined the two detectives. I followed his instructions, taking up my position by the bay's door and wondering what on earth lay behind the request. Why was I to stand in this particular spot on guard? I looked thoughtfully down the corridor in front of me. An idea struck me. With the exception of Cynthia Murdoch's, Everyone's room was in this left wing. Had that anything to do with it? Was I to report who came or went? I stood faithfully at my post. The minutes passed. Nobody came. Nothing happened. I must have been quite twenty minutes before Poirot rejoined me. You have not stirred. No, I've stuck here like a rock. Nothing's happened. Ah. Was he pleased or disappointed? You've seen nothing at all? No. But you have probably heard something. A big bump, eh, mon ami? No. Is it possible? Ah. But I am vexed with myself. I am not usually clumsy. I made but a light gesture. I know Poirot's gestures. With the left hand, and overwent the table by the bed. He looked so childishly vexed and crestfallen that I hastened to console him. Never mind, old chap. What does it matter? Your triumph downstairs excited you. I can tell you, that was a surprise to us all. There must be more in this affair of Inglethorpe's with Mrs. Rakes than we thought, to make him hold his tongue so persistently. 
What are you going to do now? Where are the Scotland Yard fellows? Gone downstairs to interview the servants. I showed them all our exhibits. I am disappointed in Jap. He has no method. Hello, I said, looking out of the window. Here's Dr. Bowerstein. I believe you're right about that man, Poirot. I don't like him. He's clever, observed Poirot meditatively. Oh, clever as the devil. I must say, I was overjoyed to see him in the plight he was in on Tuesday. He never saw such a spectacle. And I described the doctor's adventure. He looked a regular scarecrow, plastered with mud from head to toe. You saw him then? Yes, of course. He didn't want to come in. It was just after dinner. But Mr. Inglethorpe insisted. What? Poirot caught me violently by the shoulders. Was Dr. Bowerstein here on Tuesday evening? Here? And you never told me? Why did you not tell me? Why? Why? He appeared to be in an absolute frenzy. My dear Poirot, I expostulated. I never thought it would interest you. I didn't know it was of any importance. Importance? It is of the first importance. So Dr. Bowerstein was here on Tuesday night, the night of the murder. Hastings, do you not see? That also's everything. Everything. I had never seen him so upset. Loosening his hold of me, he mechanically straightened a pair of candlesticks, still murmuring to himself. Yes, that alters everything. Suddenly, he seemed to come at a decision. Allons, he said. We must act at once. Where is Mr. Cavendish? John was in the smoking room. Poirot went straight to him. Mr. Cavendish, I have some important business in Tadminster. A new clue. May I take your motor? Why, of course. Zooming at once. If you please. John rang the bell and ordered round the car. In another ten minutes, we were racing down the park and along the high road to Tadminster. Now, Poirot, I remarked resignedly, perhaps you will tell me what this is all about. Well, mon ami, a good deal you can guess for yourself. Of course, you realise that. Now Mr. Ingosorp is out of it. The old position is greatly changed. We are face to face with an entirely new problem. We know now that there is one person who did not buy the poison. We have cleared away the manufactured clues. Now for the real ones. I have ascertained that anyone in the household, with the exception of Mrs. Cavendish, 
who was playing tennis with you, could have personated Mr. Ingosop on Monday evening. In the same way, we have his statement that he put the coffee down in the hall. No one took much notice of that at the inquest, but now it has a very different significance. We must find out who did take that coffee to Mrs. Ingosop eventually, or who passed through the hall whilst it was standing there. From your account, there are only two people whom we can positively say did not go near the coffee. Mrs. Cavendish and Mademoiselle Cynthia. Yes, that is so. I felt an inexpressible lightning of the heart. Mary Cavendish could certainly not rest under suspicion. In clearing Alfred Inglesop, continued Poirot, I have been obliged to show my hand sooner than I intended. As long as I might be sought to be pursuing him, the criminal would be off his guard. Now he will be doubly careful. Yes, doubly careful. He turned to me abruptly. Tell me, Hastings, you yourself, have you no suspicions of anybody? I hesitated. To tell the truth, an idea, wild and extravagant in itself, had once or twice that morning flashed through my brain. I rejected it as absurd. Nevertheless, it persisted. You couldn't call it a suspicion, I murmured. It's so utterly foolish. Come now, urged Poirot encouragingly. Do not fear. Speak your mind. You should always pay attention to your instincts. Well then, I blurted out. It's absurd, but I suspect Miss Howard of not telling all she knows. Miss Howard? Yes. You'll laugh at me. Not at all. Why should I? I can't help feeling, I continued blunderingly, that we'd rather left her out of the possible suspects, simply on the strength of her having been away from the place. But after all, she was only fifteen miles away. A car would do it in half an hour. Can we say positively that she was away from Styles on the night of the murder? Yes, my friend, said Poirot unexpectedly. We can. One of my first actions was to ring up the hotel where she was working. Well? Well, I learnt that Miss Howard had been on afternoon duty on Tuesday, and that... A convoy coming in unexpectedly, she had kindly offered to remain on night duty, which offer was gratefully accepted. That disposes of that. Oh, I said, rather nonplussed. Really, I continued. It's her extraordinary vehemence against Inglethorpe that started me off suspecting her. I can't help feeling she'd do anything against him. And I had an idea she might know something about the destroying of the will. She might have burnt the new one, mistaking it for the earlier one in his favour. 
she's so terribly bitter against him. You consider her vehemence unnatural? Yes, she's so very violent. I wondered really whether she is quite sane on that point. Poirot shook his head energetically. No, no, you are on a wrong tack, sir. There's nothing weak-minded or degenerate about Miss Howard. She is an excellent specimen of well-balanced English beef and brawn. She is sanity itself. Yet her hatred of Inglethorpe seems almost a mania. My idea was, a very ridiculous one no doubt, that she had intended to poison him, and that, in some way, Mrs. Inglethorpe got hold of it by mistake. But I don't at all see how it could have been done. The whole thing is absurd and ridiculous to the last degree. Still, you are right in one thing. It is always wise to suspect everybody until you can prove logically and to your own satisfaction that they are innocent. Now, what reasons are there against Miss Howard's having deliberately poisoned Mrs. Inglesorp? Why, she was devoted to her, I exclaimed. Cha, cha, cried Poirot irritably. You argue like a child. If Miss Howard were capable of poisoning the old lady, she would be quite equally capable of simulating devotion. No, we must look elsewhere. You are perfectly correct in your assumption that our vehemence against Alfred Inglethorpe is too violent to be natural, but you are quite wrong in the deduction you draw from it. I have drawn my own deductions, which I believe to be correct, but I will not speak of them at present. He paused a minute, then went on. Now, to my way of thinking, there is one insurpassable objection to Miss Howard's being the murderess. And that is, that in no possible way could Mrs. Inglesorp's death benefit Miss Howard. Now there is no murder without a motive. I reflected. Could not Mrs. Inglethorpe have made a will in her favour? Poirot shook his head. But you yourself suggested that possibility to Mr. Wells. Poirot smiled. That was for a reason. I didn't want to mention the name of the person who was actually in my mind. Miss Howard occupied very much the same position, so I used her name instead. Still, Mrs. Inglethorpe might have done so. Why? That will she made on the afternoon of her death may. But Poirot's shake of the head was so energetic that I stopped. No, my friend, I have certain little ideas of my own about that will. But I can tell you this much. It was not in Miss Howard's favour. I accepted his assurance though I did not really see how he could be so positive about the matter. Well, I said with a sigh, 
We will acquit Miss Howard then. It is partly your fault that I ever came to suspect her. It was what you said about her evidence at the inquest that set me off. Poirot looked puzzled. What did I say about her evidence at the inquest? Don't you remember? When I cited her and John Cavendish as being above suspicion. Oh, ah, yes. He seemed a little confused, but recovered himself. By the way, Hastings, there's something I want you to do for me. Certainly. What is it? Next time you happen to be alone with Lawrence Cavendish, I want you to say this to him. I have a message for you from Poirot. He says, Find the extra coffee cup and you can rest in peace. Nothing more, nothing less. Find the extra coffee cup and you can rest in peace. Is that right? I asked, much mystified. Excellent. But what does it mean? Ah, that I will leave you to find out. You have access to the facts. Just say that to him and see what he says. Very well, but it's all extremely mysterious. We were running into Tadminster now, and Poirot directed the car to the analytical chemist. Poirot hopped down briskly and went inside. In a few minutes, he was back again. There, he said. That is all my business. What were you doing in there? I asked, in lively curiosity. I left something to be analysed. Yes, but what? The sample of cocoa I took from the saucepan in the bedroom. But that had already been tested, I cried, stupefied. Dr. Bowerstein had tested it, and you yourself laughed at the possibility that there was strychnine in it. I know Dr. Bowerstein had it tested, replied Poirot quietly. Well then? Well, I have a fancy for having it analysed again, that is all. And not another word on the subject could I drag out of him. This proceeding of Poirot's, in respect of the cocoa, puzzled me intensely. I could see neither rhyme nor reason in it. However, my confidence in him, which at one time had rather waned, was fully restored since his belief in Alfred Inglethorpe's innocence had been so triumphantly vindicated. The funeral of Mrs. Inglethorpe took place the following day, and on Monday, as I came down to late breakfast, John drew me aside and informed me that Mr. Inglethorpe was leaving that morning to take up his quarters at the Stylite's Arms until he should have completed his plans. And really, it's a great relief to think he's going, Hastings, continued my honest friend. It was bad enough before, when we thought he'd done it, but I'm hanged if it isn't worse now, 
when we all feel guilty for having been so down on the fellow. The fact is, we've treated him abominably. Of course, things did look black against him. I don't see how anyone could blame us for jumping to the conclusions we did. Still, there it is. We were in the wrong, and now there's a beastly feeling that one ought to make amends, which is difficult when one doesn't like the fellow a bit better than one did before. The whole thing's damned awkward, and I'm thankful he's had the tact to take himself off. It's a good thing Styles wasn't the matest to leave to him. Couldn't bear to think of the fellow lording it here. He's welcome to her money. You'll be able to keep up the place all right, I asked. Oh yes, there are the death duties, of course. But half my father's money goes with the place. And Lawrence will stay with us for the present. So there is his share as well. We shall be pinched at first, but of course, because, as I once told you, I am in a bit of a hole financially myself. Still, the Johnnies will wait now. In the general relief at Inglethorpe's approaching departure, we had the most genial breakfast we had experienced since the tragedy. Cynthia, whose young spirits were naturally buoyant, was looking quite her pretty self again, and we all, with the exception of Lawrence, who seemed unalterably gloomy and nervous, were quite cheerful at the opening of a new and hopeful future. The papers, of course, had been full of the tragedy. Glaring headlines, sandwiched biographies of every member of the household, Subtle innuendos, the usual familiar tag about the police having a clue. Nothing was spared us. It was a slack time. The war was momentarily inactive, and the newspapers seized with avidity on this crime in fashionable life. The mysterious affair at Styles was the topic of the moment. Naturally, it was very annoying for the Cavendishes. The house was constantly besieged by reporters, who were consistently denied admission, but who continued to haunt the village and the grounds, where they laid in wait with cameras for any unwary member of the household. We all lived in a blast of publicity. The Scotland Yard men came and went examining, questioning, lynx-eyed and reserved of tongue. Towards what end they were working, we did not know. Had they any clue, or would the whole thing remain in the category of undiscovered crimes? After breakfast, Dorcas came up to me rather mysteriously and asked if she might have a few words with me. Certainly. What is it, Dorcas? Well, it's just this, sir. You'll be seeing the Belgian gentleman today, perhaps? I nodded. Well, sir, 
You know how he asked me so particular if the mistress, or anyone else, had a green dress. Yes, you have found one. My interests were aroused. No, not that, sir. But since then, I've remembered what the young gentleman... John and Lawrence were still the young gentlemen to Dorcas. Call the dressing up box. It's up in the front attic, sir. A great chest, full of old clothes and fancy dresses and what not. And it came to me sudden-like that there might be a green dress amongst them. So, if you'd tell the Belgian gentleman. I will tell him, Dorcas, I promised. Thank you very much, sir. A very nice gentleman he is, sir, and quite a different class from them two detectives from London. What goes prying about and asking questions? I don't hold with foreigners as a rule, but from what the newspapers say, I make out as how these brave Belgies isn't the ordinary run of man, and certainly he's a most polite-spoken gentleman. Dear old Dorcas, as she stood there with her honest face upturned to mine, I thought what a fine specimen she was of the old-fashioned servant that is so fast dying out. I thought I might as well go down to the village at once and look up Poirot, but I met him halfway, coming up to the house, and at once gave him Dorcas's message. Ah. The brave Dorcas, we will look at the chest. Although, but no matter, we will examine it all the same. We entered the house by one of the windows. There was no one in the hall, and we went straight to the attic. Sure enough, there was the chest, a fine old piece, all studded with brass nails and full to overflowing with every imaginable type of garment. Poirot bundled everything out on the floor with scant ceremony. There were one or two green fabrics of varying shades, but Poirot shook his head over all of them. He seemed somewhat apathetic in the search, as though he expected no great result from it. Suddenly, he gave an exclamation. What is it? Look. The chest was nearly empty, and there, reposing right at the bottom, was a magnificent black beard. Oh-ho, said Poirot. Oh-ho. He turned it over in his hands, examining it closely. New, he remarked. Yes. Quite new. After a moment's hesitation, he replaced it in the chest, heaped all the other things on top of it as before, and made his way briskly downstairs. He made his way straight to the pantry, where we found Dorcas busily polishing her silver. Poirot wished her good morning with Gallic politeness, and went on. We've been looking through that chest, Dorcas. I am much obliged to you for your mentioning it. Says, indeed, 
a fine collection there. Are they often used, may I ask? Well, sir, not very often nowadays, though from time to time we do have what the young gentlemen call a dress-up night. And very funny it is sometimes, sir. Mr. Lawrence, he's wonderful, most comic. I shall never forget the night he came down as the Shah of Persia. I think he called it, or sort of Eastern King it was. He had the big paper knife in his hand, and, mind Dorcas, he said, you'll have to be very respectful. This is my specially sharpened shimtar, and it's off with your head if I'm at all displeased with you. Miss Cynthia, she was what they call an Apache, or some such. A Frenchified sort of cutthroat, I take it to be. A real sight to look at. You'd never have believed a pretty young lady like that could have made herself into such a ruffian. Nobody would have known her. These evenings must have been great fun said Poirot genially. I suppose Mr. Lawrence was at fine black beard in the chest upstairs when he was Tsar of Persia. He did have a beard, sir, replied Dorcas, smiling. And well I know it, for he borrowed it two skeins of my black wool to make it with. And I'm sure it looked wonderfully natural at a distance. I didn't know as there was a beard up there at all. It must have been got quite lately, I think. There was a red wig, I know, but nothing else in the way of hair. Burnt corks they were used mostly, though tis messy getting it off again. So Dorcas knows nothing about that black beard, said Poirot thoughtfully, as we walked out into the hall again. Do you think it is the one? I whispered eagerly. Poirot nodded. I do. You notice it had been trimmed? No. Yes, it was cut exactly the shape of Mr. Anglesorps, and I found one or two snipped hairs. Hastings, this affair is very deep. Who put it in the chest, I wonder? Someone with a good deal of intelligence, remarked Poirot dryly. You realise that he chose the one place in the house to hide it, where its presence would not be remarked? Yes, he is intelligent. But we must be more intelligent. We must be so intelligent that he does not suspect us of being intelligent at all. I acquiesced. There, mon ami, you will be of great assistance to me. I was pleased with the compliment. There were times that I'd hardly thought that Poirot appreciated me at my true worth. Yes, he continued, staring at me thoughtfully. You will be invaluable. This was naturally gratifying but Poirot's next words were not so welcome. I must have an ally in the house, he observed reflectively. 
You have me, I protested. True, but you are not sufficient. I was hurt and showed it. Poirot hurried to explain himself. You do not quite take my meaning. You are known to be working with me. I want somebody who is not associated with us in any way. Oh, I see. How about John? No, I think not. The dear fellow isn't perhaps very bright, I said thoughtfully. Here comes Miss Howard, said Poirot suddenly. She is the very person. But I am in her black books since I cleared Mr. Ingersoll. Still, we can but try. With a nod that was barely civil, Miss Howard assented to Poirot's request for a few minutes' conversation. We went into the little morning room, and Poirot closed the door. Well, Monsieur Poirot, said Miss Howard impatiently, what is it? Out with it. I'm busy. Do you remember, mademoiselle, that I once asked you to help me? Yes, I do, the lady nodded. And I told you I'd help you with pleasure to hang Alfred Inglethorpe. Ah, Poirot studied her seriously. Miss Howard, I will ask you one question. I beg of you to reply to it truthfully. Never tell lies, replied Miss Howard. It is this. Do you still believe that Mrs. Inglesorp was poisoned by her husband? What do you mean? she asked sharply. You needn't think your pretty explanations influence me in the slightest. I'll admit that it wasn't he who brought the strychnine at the chemist's shop. What of that? I dare say he soaked flypaper, as I told you at the beginning. That is arsenic, not strychnine, said Poirot, mildly. What does that matter? Arsenic would put poor Emily out of the way just as well as strychnine. If I'm convinced he did it, it doesn't matter a jot to me how he did it. Exactly. If you are convinced he did it, said Poirot quietly, I will put my question in another form. Did you ever in your art of arts believe that Mrs. Inglesorp was poisoned by her husband? Good heavens, cried Miss Howard. Haven't I always told you the man is a villain? Haven't I always told you he would murder her in her bed? Haven't I always hated him like poison? Exactly, said Poirot. That bears out my little idea entirely. What little idea? Miss Howard, do you remember a conversation that took place on the day of my friend's arrival here? He repeated it to me and there is a sentence of yours that has impressed me very much. Do you remember affirming that if a crime had been committed and anyone you loved had been murdered, 
You felt certain that you would know by instinct who the criminal was, even if you were quite unable to prove it. Yes, I remember saying that. I believe it too. I suppose you think it nonsense. Not at all. And yet you will pay no attention to my instinct against Alfred Inglethorpe. No, said Poirot curtly, because your instinct is not against Mr. Inglethorpe. What? No. You wish to believe he committed the crime. You believe him capable of committing it. But your instincts tell you he did not commit it. It tells you more. Shall I go on? She was staring at him, fascinated, and made a slight affirmative movement of the hand. Shall I tell you why you have been so vehement against Mr. Inglesorpe? It is because you have been trying to believe what you wish to believe. It is because you are trying to drown and stifle your instinct, which tells you another name. No, 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 cried Miss Howard wildly, flinging up her hands. Don't say it. Oh, don't say it. It isn't true. It can't be true. I don't know what puts such a wild, such a dreadful idea in my head. I am right, am I not? asked Poirot. Yes, yes. You must be a wizard to have guessed. But it can't be so. It's too monstrous. Too impossible. It must be Alfred Inglethorpe. Poirot shook his head gravely. Don't ask me about it, continued Miss Howard. Because I shan't tell you. I won't admit it, even to myself. I must be mad to think of such a thing. Poirot nodded, as if satisfied. I will ask you nothing. It is enough for me that it is as I thought. And I, I too have an instinct. We are working together towards a common end. Don't ask me to help you, because I won't. I wouldn't lift a finger to, to. She faltered. You will help me in spite of yourself. I ask you nothing, but you will be my ally. You will not be able to help yourself. You will do the only thing that I want of you. And that is... You will watch. Evelyn Howard bowed her head. Yes, I can't help doing that. I'm always watching, always hoping I shall be proved wrong. If we are wrong, well and good, said Poirot. No one will be more pleased than I shall. But if we are right, if we are right, Miss Howard, on whose side are you then? I don't know. I don't know. Come now. It could be hushed up. There must be no hushing up. But Emily herself, she broke off. Miss Howard, said Poirot, gravely, this is unworthy of you. 
Suddenly, she took her face from her hands. Yes, she said quietly. That was not Evelyn Howard who spoke. She flung her head up proudly. This is Evelyn Howard, and she is on the side of justice. Let the cost be what it may. And with these words, she walked firmly out of the room. Zia, said Poirot, looking after her, goes a valuable ally. That woman, Hastings, has got brains as well as art. I did not reply. Instinct is a marvellous thing, mused Poirot. It can neither be explained nor ignored. You and Miss Howard seem to know what you are talking about, I observed coldly. Perhaps you don't realise that I am still in the dark. Really? Is that so, mon ami? Yes. Enlighten me, will you? Poirot studied me attentively for a moment or two. Then, to my intense surprise, he shook his head decidedly. No, my friend. Oh, look here. Why not? Two is enough for a secret. Well, I think it is very unfair to keep back facts from me. I am not keeping back facts. Every fact that I know is in your possession. You can draw your own deductions from them. This time, it is a question of ideas. Still, it would be interesting to know. Poirot looked at me very earnestly, and again shook his head. You see, he said sadly, you have no instincts. It was intelligence you were requiring just now, I pointed out. The two often go together, said Poirot enigmatically. The remark seemed so utterly irrelevant that I did not even take the trouble to answer it. But I decided that if I made any interesting and important discoveries, as no doubt I should, I would keep them to myself and surprise Poirot with the ultimate result. There are times when it is one's duty to assert oneself.